Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 as here on this fourth Sunday of Advent we continue to be reminded of the Christmas story. Our reading this morning will begin in verse 12, continuing through verse 23. Hear the word of our Lord. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer that he may speak to us this hour. Our Father, as we consider this familiar story and these words that you have given to us, we pray that you would be at work, that we would find true what you have declared, that your word gives life. Father, shape our minds, our hearts, and therefore our lives. Open our eyes not only to see you, but to see ourselves. For as we are able to see ourselves, we are able to rejoice in what you have given us in Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would be at work, that as we see Christ, as we see Jesus through these words, we would see not only an infant child, we would see the one who reigns in our lives. Lord, be all glory to you as we, your people, are shaped, formed, comforted, and directed by the word of your Spirit. We pray this. In the name of Christ, who is himself the Word incarnated. Amen. The day the Magi crowded into Joseph and Mary's humble dwelling was 
one of sheer surreality. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it, it certainly seems to fit. It, it just didn't seem real, and yet everything was very real. These Gentile stargazers from afar who were crowding into this small home and then bowing down to worship their toddler and their stories. I mean, familiar to us, but Mary and Joseph didn't know them. These people who had gone over the mountainous terrain from present-day Iraq into find them outside of Jerusalem in this tiny little village of Bethlehem because they were following a star. What an amazing, amazing story that a star would bring people from far away to a particular spot that they would find this humble, insignificant couple. And the gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh that were given to them fit for a king. Mary and Joseph may not have actually been impoverished at the time, but whatever their financial situation had been the day before, it certainly had been enhanced significantly right now in a way that they couldn't imagine, perhaps had difficulty even appreciating. And yet now these men are gone. We don't know how long it was that they stayed, whether it was there for an hour visit or stayed and camped out around their place for a few days. But all of the energy, all of the hubbub, all was now quiet. The men, their caravan, had gone. Now, I imagine that it was, sleep did not come easy that first night for Mary and Joseph. I mean, after all, however long these people were there, they were both exhausted and exhilarated at the same time. And so while they would lie in bed, they would lie wide awake. Maybe they stepped out into the night air in order to kind of clear their heads. We don't know. There's a lot that we are not told. We don't know whether the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream that first night or if he wasn't able to sleep at all that night, whether it was the night after, we only know that it probably had to be sometime very soon because Bethlehem, being only a few miles from Jerusalem, it wouldn't have taken Herod long to realize that he had been duped, that his anger and his vengeance and his plan would be unleashed. And so we read in verse 13 that eventually the angel of the Lord did come to, J to Joseph and he appeared to him in his dream and said, Rise and take your child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child that he may destroy him. I think what I appreciate most about this particular part of the nativity narrative is that it connects Christmas with real life brings us face to face with the world that we know, the world that we live in. See, for many people, Christmas, even religion itself, is used as an opportunity to escape the cruelties of the life that we have around us. For a few weeks, every December, we're able to turn our attention to live in a fantasy land, to live in the 
wonderful world of nostalgia, in the land of make-believe, that even if we only visit there for a few moments at a time before the reality of life creeps in and interrupts it, our thoughts go right back to where we wish we could live, where we wish things were pure and perfect and joyful and reason for celebration. And I don't want to suggest that this is a wrong thing for any of us. I think that the whole Christmas season, the idea that we can sing, it's the most wonderful time in the world, at the same time realizing that there are difficulties that all of us face, it gives us an opportunity to express the longing that we all have for a world that we've been promised and yet we, we don't presently have. We also need to face the reality that if there's a religion or there's a celebration that all it does is provide you an escape for a moment and doesn't address the realities with which we live, then it actually offers us nothing more than a big bottle of alcohol or a recreational drug. Something that offers no real benefit but allows us just to escape, to be numbed, and to forget about the realities of life for a very short time. But this passage doesn't allow us to do that. This passage, while certainly at the heart of a religious expression, God's revelation of his gift of his son, addresses the world that we live in. Because we don't live in a world of a Norman Rockwell or a Thomas Kincaid painting with beauty and simplicity and just peace and joy. We have problems. We have personal issues that we struggle with. They could be relationships. They could be other tangible factors. And even if your life is blessed and you are not struggling with any of those, then just turn on the news. See the violence and the heinousness that is characteristic of the world we live in because our world is filled with pain and troubles and difficulties. we're called to live in that real world. But our God, who's very real, not only acknowledges the reality of the world in which we live in, he reminds us that he is in control and reveals to us that he has provided not an escape, but an answer. As we look at this in a survey of this passage this morning, and we'll do this relatively quickly, there's really two things that we need to see that this passage teaches us. One is that all humanity is in need of salvation. The second is that God, who is in control, has given us the gift of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's consider first that all humanity is in need of salvation. Somebody may wonder, where am I getting this? Primarily, we, receive, we recognize that through the, the people that are introduced into this particular passage, not the central character of Jesus and even the others with Mary and Joseph, but the people that God brings into their life, people who are introduced and really juxtaposed against one another here, the two primary characters of, of the Magi and of Herod. The Magi are a 
simply Persian astrologers, most likely of some level of nobility, certainly with a tremendous amount of, of wealth. But they, as we know, as Camper shared with us last week, they traveled from Persia following the star, and they did so not out of a vain curiosity. They were not out on a geocaching expedition where they had found clues, and then once they found them, they would just leave a little note for the next person that would come after them. They were on a religious quest. They were hungering for, longing for, needing the one that God had promised who would be the king of kings. They may not have been recognized in one sense what it was that they were looking for, but they knew that they had this need. And the Magi serve as an illustration to us because the Magi, who had everything this life could possibly offer, they had wealth, they were in a group, they had their own form of religion, they had power, and they had influence. That which most of us, most people think will bring us the comfort or at least the security that we desire to navigate this life, they had it all. And yet they were still restless, still looking for something. And so they came looking for Jesus. Finding him, worshipped him. Recognizing that this is the king, this is the promise, they knew what they had found. They are the evidence, or they are the, a vivid illustration of what Augustine said, is that our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. These people, the whole world, who own the whole world, were still restless until they found Jesus. And it's a reminder to us that whether they're the wisest or the wealthiest people in the world, they are in need of something greater than themselves. They are in need of being reconciled to God they are in need in being a fellowship with God, and that comes only in the person of Jesus Christ. We also see Herod. who gives us a very different picture and nevertheless tells us the same thing, that all of humanity is in need of salvation. Now, secular history tells us that Herod was just an absolute monster. Ethnically, he was Arab. Religiously, he was Jewish. Politically, he was Roman. And those things didn't fit together. Maybe that's what made him a wee bit ornery. But history tells us that Herod had killed three of his own sons as they were growing because he saw them as rivals to his throne. Josephus, the historian, tells us that Herod, recognizing that nobody liked him, and that upon his death, nobody was going to mourn for him. He decided that he would make people mourn. So he gathered, ordered that there would be leaders, local leaders, people who were loved from around the community. They would all be gathered and they would be held as Herod was approaching death in the Hippodrome. And then upon the announcement that Herod himself had died, that the soldiers were to come and execute every one of these leaders. And his thought was, you may not mourn for me, but the tears that I desire to see shed will be shed upon my death. He is a warped and a wicked person. And this is evidenced through much of his own history. And so when you understand those kinds of things about him, it's not difficult to see the kind of person who would 
come up with this idea that was going to wipe out the rival king. An interesting note in this particular passage that may escape our notice at first look is that up until the time that the Magi bow before Jesus Christ, Herod is referred to as a king. But once the Magi recognized who the true king is, Matthew, as he records it, never again refers to Herod as a king, just as Herod. Herod was very well aware that Jesus wasn't only the rival, but, Herod, but that Jesus was a threat to his power, his security, to everything that he lived for. And somebody who is this self-centered, this warped, it's not difficult to imagine that he would come up with the plan that we see that is revealed by the angel. That Herod is going to seek out to destroy the real king. And to do so, to give himself a wide margin of error, he's going to destroy every male child born within the past couple of years, two years and under. Because based on the information they received from the astrologers and the, and the, and the scholars, they thought that certainly that would be inclusive. And so not only concerned about wiping out his rival, he was willing to destroy innocent life. Herod is the embodiment of evil. He is the personification of evil. And it's a reminder that evil does exist in this world. We live in a culture where there are some who want to kind of downplay, just talk, talk about it being psychological whatever. And no doubt he was a psycho. In desperate need of counseling. But the reason for that is he was wicked. He was evil. Evil exists. There are evil people and evil exists in this world. And even what took place here that we're told in the slaughter of the innocents that Herod did carry out his execution plan went over into Bethlehem and they killed all the children to and under scholars considering how large or how small of a, of a village it was. They estimate the population and say that there was probably only about 20 young boys killed. But nevertheless, it's 20 young boys killed. Think of the anguish in our culture as that many people are shot up at a Christmas party in San Bernardino. Now think of the anguish in this tiny little village where 20 young boys is a significant portion of the population. It is the future. They are the future. And now they are no more. See, through this passage, God is telling us that there is evil in this world, and evil doesn't care who it hurts. Evil just wants what it wants, and even people who are not involved in any activity whatsoever are sometimes affected. This is the world that we live in. This is real. And the fact that God acknowledges this is a reminder to us that our God is not just an escapism. We don't come to God simply for escape, but our God is addressing the world in which we live in and saying, look, I know what the world is like. I know it's a problem. And I have a solution. And God's solution to the problem of evil in this world which means that we all need to be saved is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. God has provided an answer. This passage tells us that God is in control. He's not only aware of a problem, he's been aware of it much longer than you and me. 
He was aware of it from the very beginning, from the first fall that brought sin and wickedness into the world and that continued to grow and spread. It's infected every person who's been born since then. Every person affected some way or another with evil. God, as he's addressing that, having made a promise that he would send a deliverer, in this narrative demonstrates that he carries out, he has the ability, the power to carry out his plans. We see that in the very fact that Jesus was able to escape. The plan was to wipe Jesus out. Now, we often celebrate and say that Jesus was born to die. So in that sense, we kind of wonder why that's a big deal. Jesus had been born, mission accomplished, correct? And so if he had just died at that point, been 30 years a little earlier ahead of plan, what's the big deal? It's vitally important that we understand that Jesus wasn't just born for us, and Jesus didn't just die for us, but Jesus also lived for us. It was absolutely necessary that he lived this life in perfect fulfillment with the commands of God, that he would demonstrate to us what perfection was, that he would, having been made declared perfect, would be an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus, who was born, had he been killed at that point, being fully flesh and blood, he would have died. And salvation would not have been accomplished. But God, being aware and being in control, brings the announcement to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. and says, take your child, take his mother, and go and escape. God is aware, God is in control, and he's working his, his purposes out. We see it even more vividly in the fact that each step along the way was the fulfillment of a prophecy. We see three prophecies listed in this particular text. In verse 15, we see the, the kind of the summary of when the angel said, take this child and his mother and go to Egypt, not only is it a strategic way to get out of Herod's way, but it fulfills the prophecy that says, because I will say he will be, that out of Egypt I will call my son. It's not insignificant. We don't have time to really explore it, but what a fascinating thing, because there's a beautiful connection that we need to understand as well, because it also creates for us a connection and a typology, because there was another deliverer that God had raised up who came out of Egypt as well. And so to connect the promised Messiah with the deliverer Moses who came out of Egypt, and to recognize, as the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus is the greater Moses, he, came out of, he needed to come out of Egypt. We see another prophecy that was fulfilled, one that is of sadness, is that as the children were slaughtered in their innocence in Bethlehem, even after Jesus had escaped, it reveals to us the reality that the Lord brings out his purpose despite the ugliness of evil and the enemy in this world. It was the fulfillment of the prophecy which doesn't in any way diminish the ugliness of these children being massacred. And yet it validates that God was in control and reaffirms we're still in need of being saved. We're still in need of being protected from the evil in this world. But even as they died, they didn't die in vain because it validated that God was in control. It declared that what God had prophesied through Jeremiah, was very true. 
metaphorically, Rachel, who originally was presented as crying out in wilderness for her children who were put into exile, now were crying for her children who had been executed. The third one that we see in this passage, which is actually perhaps the most interesting of the prophecies, we find in verse 23, He went and lived in a city. In, uh, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That uh, that what the, was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. What's interesting about this one, as opposed to the other ones, is this is a very generic one because while the other ones talk about a very specific prophecy, a specific prophet that spoke, Matthew here records that it was spoken by the prophets, plural, all of them. But even more intriguing than that was a message that was declared by all of the prophets is the fact that you will never find these words anywhere in the Old Testament. So what all the prophets declared, you don't even find anywhere in the Old Testament except it's there. Because what he's speaking to in this veiled language of he shall be called a Nazarene is speaking to the fact that Jesus would be despised and rejected and considered nothing and insignificant even though he was the king of kings. See, to be called a Nazarene was the ancient equivalent to the N-word. In fact, it is an N-word. People would use that as a slur. You're, you're Nazarene. The earliest expressions of Christianity were, trying, were trivialized by those who opposed it because they were just told, that's just that, it's that Nazarene sect, which basically meant stupid, worthless, nothingness in order to belittle them so that people would not be intrigued with the message that they were declaring. And so when Matthew writes that all the prophets were, it would be fulfilled what the prophets had said, that he shall be called a Nazarene, it's not the literal words that he means that you would find. And anybody who suggests uh, that, therefore, it's invalidated, they're still mistaken because it suggests the despisement that he received. And despising doesn't mean hate. Despise means literally not considering something worthy of any attention or consideration. Insignificant, just beneath everyone. But by being a Nazarene, by moving there, there was something else that was significant that took place, is that Jesus became the Savior for every man. See, had he remained in Bethlehem, Bethlehem carried great significance. It was the city of David. It was the city of royalty. Nazareth was the city of rednecks. Nothing to spies. Had Jesus remained only in Bethlehem and been raised in Bethlehem, there's a certain privilege and status that goes with it that he is certainly worthy of as being the king, except he didn't come to be the king for only the elite. He came for all of us. And by the fulfillment of this prophecy, by being from Nazareth, being raised there, sends the message that there is nobody that is too low to be saved by this king. God is demonstrating throughout this particular passage that he is in control and he's orchestrating all things, no matter what the enemy comes up with, no matter what evil throws, God is in control. The theological word for the plans of God is immutability. It's a big word, but it's easy to understand when I explain it this way. It means you can't press the mute button on God. He declares... He carries out. And his answer to the evil that is in this world, the answer to the delivery, the protection that we need, 
The answer for the salvation that is needed by all humanity is given in the person of Jesus Christ. And God is carrying out and has carried out, will carry out exactly what he intended because of Jesus. And that's reason to celebrate. Now some may wonder, why doesn't he just wipe out evil? Like now. All at one time. And it is a very important question. Before I address it, I need to ask you a question if that's, a, if that's something that is on your mind. Why doesn't he just do this? And here's my question. Where would you draw that line that he would eradicate for evil? What is the standard where these people God just takes away and these people he lets live? The reason I ask that question is because it's vitally important to understand what God has promised, what God is doing, and to realize God is already at work, God has already promised, and he's already fulfilling what he's promised in eliminating of evil. But we understand it this way when we look at the person of, of Herod. It's very easy to consider Herod as being the, kind of the, the villain of the gospel narratives, particularly the, the villain of the nativity scene. We need to see Herod in another light as well. Being reminded of something we say periodically, in the way that we read the Bible, we tend to look at the Bible as being filled with heroes and villains, right? And just like when we go to a movie, we identify with, most of us, identify with the heroes, the good people, the victims who somehow overcome. We don't like to identify with the people who are the perpetrators of evil. But consider what... One scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, says about Herod. He said, Herod teaches us that the reaction of raw human nature to the kingship of Jesus Christ is rebellion. In fact, Herod is every man. So we dismiss Herod as recognizing his evil and his villainy as somebody that God should come and just wipe out. And if you know the story of his own death, it's grotesque. He basically got gangrene and was eaten by worms, and then he died. Seems appropriate to me in my vengeful, spiteful way, until I start thinking, but, I'm, but this guy, this scholar is saying I'm just like Herod. And then it just doesn't seem quite as appropriate, so I'm left, I have a difficulty. I can either deny that reality, or at least that assertion, or I can realize I need a lot of help. Because I believe Brunner is onto something and he's very right. The fact is, Herod is simply living out what our raw human nature does, apart from God's restraining grace. All of us seek to protect our own kingdoms, whatever it is, however broad, however small they may be. All of us have short tempers. All of us I'll think by nature that the world should revolve around us and we protect our territories. And sometimes rightfully, and sometimes we just justify them. Some will object and saying, yeah, but Herod was an absolute murderer. I mean, history, killing his own people, killing his children, killing the innocents. 
then I think about what Jesus says, Matthew records a few chapters later. If you are angry with your brother, you are guilty of murder. And then I think of the holiday time, and family coming to visit. And visit. It's so exciting at first. Reminds me of the old saying that says some people bring joy whenever, whenever, uh, wherever they go, and other people bring joy whenever they go, and and so. <laughs> but it's a reminder to us, a sobering reminder. Do you have a short fuse? Maybe you don't express it, but you tire of people very easily. Do you have a critical spirit? Are you quick to point out to people? I know you're only trying to help them, but do you quick to point out all of their flaws? These are expressions of the fact that people don't live up to your standards. You're angry with them, and we're all guilty. We're all hurt. So if God was going to wipe out all of evil, he has to wipe out all of humanity if he's going to wipe it out all at one time, at least according to the way we did. God has another plan, though. And this has come in the sending of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul captures it beautifully when he writes in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us who were ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies of God, We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. But now, how much more are we reconciled? Shall we be saved in this life that we are his children? See, this is the plan of Christmas that we celebrate. Is that God had promised that he would eradicate evil. God has initiated the eradication of evil. God has made the down payment in the, the earnest and the surety in the person of Jesus Christ that evil is done. And yet he is at work in eradicating that in the lives of his people as we recognize our evil, confess that, trusting in Christ. And he who is at work will continue to be at work that we might die to the evil that is in our own life and grow in his righteousness, which means there's a little less evil in this world and a little bit more righteousness, and that we might also proclaim that same hope to all of the other people who are evil in this world. Now, It's vitally important that we understand this, and this passage is so important that God didn't give it to us just in one particular form. In fact, even at the very end, in Revelation chapter 12, God tells us the same story in a way that I'm going to finish up my message this morning, but just by reading those passages with a few comments along the way. But in Revelation chapter 12, see if you recognize the story of the entire nativity, because in Revelation chapter 12, we see Matthew 1 and 2 in its entirety, and yet in apocalyptic terms. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with on, on, on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and 
cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down, thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser and our brothers, uh, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This is the promise fulfilled of Christmas. And that benefits us, not only that Christ lived, but Christ reigns. And he rules and reigns and conquered by the shedding of his blood, the testimony of his word. We overcome by the shedding of his blood and the testimony of the word. Because the shedding of the blood works with the testimony of, his, of their word that he is the promise, delivered, our protector, 